chapter 6 today. We'll be reading the whole chapter 1 through 14. And if you would like to use a pew Bible close to you, you can find uh, that uh, chapter on page 768. Page 768. Now again, we talked about this being Reformation Sunday. So 501 years ago, on October 31st, 1517, a German monk uh, and Bible professor strolled from his monastery across town, uh, across the town of Wittenberg, uh, to the castle church. There, the door of the church acted like a kind of public bulletin board where people would read notices on important information. And there, the, the monk nailed a set of propositions, if you will, the 95 statements or thesis, as they are called. Uh, to the door for academic debate. He wanted to debate the academics about these issues that he found that were contrary to the Word of God. Little did Martin Luther know that on that chilly autumn day, he would light the fire of the Protestant Reformation. The core of Luther's concern was the selling of indulgences. Uh, when the Pope got into a bit of financial bind with the building of Christendom's largest cathedral, St. Petersburg in Rome, he offered Christians pardons for their sins committed in exchange for a contribution to the construction fund. The Roman Catholic Church taught the doctrine of purgatory, a place of torment, which, and, and they actually still teach that, which people went at their death so they could be purged of their sins before moving on to heaven. So supposedly a contribution would move things along in purgatory. You uh, remember the traveling advertising jingle of, Don, Don, of John Tetzel, probably you remember this. When a coin in the coffer rings... A soul from purgatory springs. Uh, many offered a counter. When the coin rings in the pitcher, the Pope gets all the richer. So corruption was the theme of the church. Think about it. Internal power struggles. Popes and cardinals living more like kings than spiritual leaders. Uh, the claiming of temporal or political power as well as spiritual power. They commanded armies, made political alliances and enemies. And sometimes they even waged war. Simony or the selling of church offices was, was rampant. The, and nepotism was as well. Clearly, if the church leadership uh, was con so concentrating on these worldly issues and affairs, there wasn't much time left to care for the souls of the faithful. And so Luther's 95 thesis were a protest against these indulgences and the church's preoccupation with wealth, affluence, and power. While there were many contra uh, contributors, I should say, throughout the Middle Ages who did their utmost to restore the centrality of biblical truth to its purity, the time was right for Luther and others reforming ideas to spread across Europe like fire 501 years ago. And so today, as we open up the book of Amos, we're going to read a text that is addressed to the leadership of Israel. And I want you to listen 
as God brings up similar issues to the people then. Let us read God's holy word. Again, Amos 6, 1-14. through Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna, and see, and go from there to Hamath, the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you any better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or who will put far off the way of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock of the calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, who are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who shall go into exile, and the reveille of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the Lord God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob, and I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him, Who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone still with you? He shall say no. And he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodibar, who say, have we not by our own street captured Canaram for ourselves? For behold, I will rise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Uh, Father, we stand in awe at Your justice. We stand in awe at Your glory. So Father, as we read these words and we think about these these, uh, woes to Your people, Israel, we ask that You would help us to have understanding. Father, thank You so much for Your love for us in Christ. Have mercy upon us and help us now. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. Now, we have to understand as we come to this passage, we've been studying through Amos and we know that God is bringing uh, judgment upon the nation of Israel. Remember at this time, it's the mid-700s B.C. And uh, the nation is divided. The nation of Israel is divided into two nations. There's Israel, the northern nation, and there's Judah in the southern nation. There's two different kings, Uzziah and Jeroboam II. 
And everything is going well in these nations at this time. They're at peace. They're at that great peace. And so the people have been, have been looking to themselves and, and we'll see how this unfolds, these woes here in just a moment. <clears throat> but what we need to understand today is, is that God's people are no longer a nation in the sense of an earthly nation. It's not like that anymore. We are a kingdom. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and as His people in this kingdom, I want you to have this in mind. I want you to think about this. We are spread all throughout the earth. So what we are is a kingdom within the nations. And we are a kingdom that is proclaiming the true King who is to return. And we are to be living within these nations as, as God's people. And Paul and the apostles remind us over and over again how to live as we, we pray for the nations. We, we live as good citizens so that um, we would be a, a refreshment, a, a, a glorious aroma to the nations around us. And yet at the same time, we are called here to take a um, thought as to what Amos would say to Israel, the nation, as his people in the kingdom. And so, just as it was during the Reformation, the truth from these verses matter to us today, the people of God, as we live in this world. And so today, we need to understand the major thrust of the problem here for Israel. It's another aspect that God is revealing to us. And he, he wants us to understand that they are holding on to their unmighty fortress of false security. So they were holding on to their unmighty fortress of false security. And then we will consider the remedy of this, which is to trust in the mighty fortress that is our God. So let's consider, first of all, the mighty fortress of false security. Now, about a hundred years or so before this time, the sons of Korah, as far as we know, is about that time period, wrote Psalm 46. Now, Psalm 46, in the last two verses, it, it, it proclaims, it says this, Be still and know that I'm God. And I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now the people of Israel at this time should have had that in their minds. They should have been meditating on this reality and this truth. They should have been singing this psalm. It should have been a favorite hymn to them. They should have believed it. However, that's not what they believed. Instead, they believed other things. And so therefore, they received this woe. Now this woe was voiced from the Lord. It was voiced through the prophet to those who were at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. I mean, what better place to be in that time frame than on a mountain where you feel you have the vision, where you can see where people are, that you are high up, you have the higher ground. They began to live in carelessness. And what happens is, is that, that they imagine that they're carefree and they're at ease, feeling secure in their military might, in their position. 
They have no conceived financial dangers that could possibly threaten their affluent lifestyles. There's no real political enemy at this point to disrupt disrupt their powerful political status. And so what we see here is this Amos attack in this chapter is directed at the nobleman of, and notice the words here that he uses, the first and the best of the nations. So he's, he's, he's sort of mocking them in a way. You think you're the best, don't you? You think you're the greatest. Well, these noble persons, these noble men, they were the prominent persons of society who had achieved notoriety, they achieved status, and their security then was further enhanced. So they were even further removed than the common people, definitely further removed than the poor people at that time who they were using to to, to maintain their affluence. And so they were further enhanced by the fact that they're leaders in Israel. They were leaders, they were knowledgeable, they were superior, they were important. And with them in charge, you can imagine the thinking that's going on among the people. You know, they're they're thinking this, what is all the fuss about Amos? I mean, really, look around, look at the kingdom we've built. Just look at this. Look at this vast and great empire. And we're going to expand So it's all good. It's all good, Amos. Just chill out. We don't need to hear your words of doom and gloom. It's almost like, uh, uh, you know, someone coming and here he comes again, the one that's dooming and glooming. Smith says this, he says, in this lament, and that's the thing that you have to understand too, coming from the chapter previous, it's a lament song that that Amos is singing over the people to so to speak. It's a lament. The the, the destruction is coming. And so in this lament that continues from chapter 5 into chapter 6, Amos describes the false hopes of the nation's estimation of its own political security and status, the people's influence, their pride in their military. The promises of God and the protection of God were no longer necessary because the people saw that they were bigger and they were better than any nation around them. They were awesome. So as long as they had the money to maintain their lifestyle, you know, they could be happy. As long as they could live peacefully and at ease in their secure palace fortresses, they were sufficiently insulated from the world of reality around them. They believed that they were leaders of the most powerful nation in the world and had a strong army to protect them. This humanistic tendency to idealize one's ability and to determine the future purely through the manipulation of human forces with the economic and political structures of society is an illusion which Amos laments. Samaria's trust was not in God. Thus, it was careless and empty security that they enjoyed. They enjoyed empty security. Spurgeon pointed out in a sermon on this chapter that they had become presumptuous. They had become procrastinators. They had become self-indulgent. They had become careless. They had become indifferent. And so what this means is that they were complacent. 
This was who they were. And, and not only was this who they were, but you have to understand from the text that they were proud of it. Yes, they were proud of it. And therefore, they were filled with the first of all sins, pride. And in that pride, there was a mighty fortress that was their false security. Now, in the Scriptures, we see that there's generally a cause and effect relationship between hard work and success in any endeavor. It's there in the Scripture. And whether that be academics or athletics or business or profession or leadership, when you read the Proverbs over and over again, it talks about that. It talks about don't be foolish, be wise. Work hard, don't be a sloth. Uh, get up out of bed, don't lay in your bed and roll around like a door on its hinges. Get to work. Look at the ant. The ant works hard and it stores up. However, the Scriptures also teach us that any success or any endeavor in which we may excel is under the sovereign control of God. And what we do as His people is we live in that balance. We are to work hard. We are to do those things. But at the same time, we trust in the sovereignty of God. You know, one of my things that I, you know, that I would love to do is, and, um, you know, we have a great many gifted men and women in our congregation who are able to do this. But, you know, like, I, I just want to be able to sing. You guys hear me sing every week. It's terrible. I listen to the recording sometimes. I'm like, oh, man, that's awful. That's awful. I love for you guys that do the sound when you don't record me. I appreciate that when the singing part. But I know. I know the reality that that's just not how God has gifted me. So I can appreciate that gift in others. So we live in this, this tension of God is in control in those particular things that we have, whether you know, it's academics, athletics, music, whatever the case may be. So here's the issue here. Honestly, and this is the truth, there is no such thing then as a self-made nation, is there? Nor is there such a thing as a self-made made man. Paul warns the proud in Corinth that none of them should be puffed up in favoritism against one another. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If, you, if then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so the question he ultimately asks here is, what do we have that we did not receive? What do we possess that is not a gift of God? Are not all things a gift of God? Our intellect, our natural skills, our talents, our health, our safety, our opportunities to succeed, food, riches, even the basic necessities of life does not all of those things come from God. Is it possible for us, though, to become so obsessed with our own appetites, our desires for success, our luxurious lifestyle, that we lose fact, lose, uh, lose sight of the fact that this is all from God? Do we lose sight of that? Pride and complacency, as revealed here by Amos, points to the fundamental attitudes that we could too easily slip into. I, I, I've used this illustration before from a 
different cultural perspective. This is a little bit older cultural perspective, but some of you will remember there was a movie back in the day called Shenandoah. Shenandoah starred Jimmy Stewart, and his character was Charles Anderson, and he was a Virginia farmer, and he was trying to keep his family out of the Civil War. And with them sitting at the table, there was one empty chair at the table, and there's a plate that's empty there, and it was set for his wife who was dead. And his children all gathered around the supper table, and Charlie gestured to them. He kind of gave them a speech, and then he gestures them to, to bow their heads, and he prays this way. Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We took in the harvest. We wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating if we hadn't done all this ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb morsel. But we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for the food that we're about to eat. Amen. Might our attitude slip ever so slightly into this type of mindset? We may not say it like Jimmy Stewart does in this, in, as this character. But the question is, is, do we live like this? For the Israelites, their pride and complacency became a blindness. And there was no sense that one day the party would end. Their whole self-serving, indulgent lifestyle is about to vanish as the Lord brings ruin upon their lives of ease. Verse 8 is the central passage here. Listen to it. Listen to the, the, the hardness of this verse. The Lord God has sworn by Himself. I don't have to, you know, God is God. There's nowhere else to swear by. He has sworn by Himself that I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Frightening words. He uses here the, the Lord of hosts, and I'll come back to that in a moment. As we have noted here, judgment is coming to Israel. Judgment is coming. And for us, though, how might such an attitude be changed? Where we are slipping into that, not giving much thought to God, not, not giving Him praise, not giving Him thanks, how might that attitude be changed? What might we do to find true security? Where is the true fortress that gives us true security? Well, we need to turn our trust to the mighty fortress that is our God to find that. So if we look back at verse 8 again, not only in this passage, it's strong in bringing judgment. You know, and there's, there's all sorts of things here that are going on. You know, the Joseph thing, that if you go back and read while Joseph's uh, brothers uh, threw him in the pit, you know what they do? They threw him in the pit and, you know, he's like 17, 18 years old, something like that. And he's crying out for his very life. He's scared to death. You know what they're doing in the passage? They're eating. Just ignoring him. And so that's what that, there's all these themes that are wrestling around here and going on in this passage. And he's saying, you're just so complacent. You don't care. And so there's judgment here, but also there's a little bit of a glimmer of grace. 
Notice the Lord here says that He is the God of hosts. Now, another way of saying the God of hosts or the Lord of hosts is that God is the armies of the heavens. Okay? He is the army of heaven. Has the army of heaven. And here it is, he brings in this text this emphasis of the divine warrior who is about to bring justice upon this nation, judgment upon this nation. However, in the scriptures as you read through them, it should also bring to mind the fact that it is he alone as the divine warrior who provides and intervenes for his people. He gives victory for his people as well. So we see this in the Scriptures, just as the Israelites, you know, they're hearing these things. They should be conjuring up these thoughts of who is the Lord, but they're blind to it. They they can't see it. All they see is the good things around them. All they see is their wealth. All they see is their luxury. All they see is what they want. All they see is their material possessions. Their notoriety. That's all they see. And they don't remember that in the Exodus experience, that they were in slavery. And God used plagues upon Egypt so that they would be released. I want you to think about that. Powerful plagues. And then, as He released them, they're standing there on the banks of the Red Sea. The army's coming toward them. The Egyptians changed their mind. We don't want to let God's people go. We're going to go after them. So they're sitting there on the bank and they're like, what are we going to do? Moses raises staff and the sea parts. Not only do we see it there in Exodus, but we see it in the conquest of the land that the Lord gives to Israel. His power and might to give them the land that He promised them. And, it, and if we go into the thinking that, well, why would God do that? Why would He destroy all those people in the land? If you go back to the book of Genesis, He says that the time of their sin had come to an end. It was time for Him to bring judgment, just like He's bringing it to Israel here. And so what we see really is, is God shows no favoritism. He doesn't. So we see it in the conquest of the land. We see it in Gideon's defeat of the Midianites with only 300 men. God did that on purpose so that we would see His power. We see it in David's defeat of the giant when every soldier was quaking in their boots. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, I come to you in the name of David because I'm strong and I can beat you. He's a kid. But he knew the power of the Lord. We see it over the victory, time and victory, time and time again over God's enemies. We see it in the security of our lives and in the gifts from our God. We know that it's true. And so, as his people, we are not to put our trust in the security of walled cities. We are not to put our security in the strength of man and wealth and great wisdom or the, last, or the latest promises that the world has to offer. Our trust as His people is to be in the one who did the greatest feat for all of us. Because the greatest feat that God has ever done is He gave us His Son, Jesus. Now I want you to think about that just for a moment. He gave us Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He came. He lived a perfect life. We've got to throw that in there because it's important to the story. Because in, 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 in His perfection, He lived that perfection out for us. And so He's the only innocent man that's ever died. Think about that for a moment. 
We want to think about the innocent dying. He's the only truly innocent man who ever died. The God-man. And so he was put upon a cross for our sins. And then he was put into the, uh, a tomb. He was put into the grave. He was put into a tomb. There was a, a stone rolled over that tomb and it was sealed with Roman seals. And we know he was dead because the guys who put him to death, were, they were killers. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to kill people. That was their job. Can you imagine? I love that debate. Did, they, did Jesus really die or was he just like the swoon theory cracks me up? I'm like, those people were killers. I mean, when people know how to kill, they know how to kill, right? So they knew Jesus was dead. They put him in a cross. So what happened in that tomb? Scripture tells us that he came to life. Now, I don't know what that, you know, the Scripture doesn't really explain all of that. When the people get there, the grave clothes are there, but, but, he comes back to life and he appears to the apostles. He appears to over 500 people. The evidence is there. So what we see is, is that Jesus himself literally conquered death. No one has ever done that. Now he raised people from the dead, but they would later die. But he came back and then ascended into heaven. This is... This is the greatest feat that God has ever shown us to show. Not only am I all powerful, I will conquer death, but I'm all loving. Because it was for you. It was for you. I mentioned before about um, Psalm 46 that the sons of Korah wrote. And that the people of Israel would have been singing <laughs> if they would have been, that, they, the, that the people of Israel should have had memorized as a favorite hymn at this point in their life, a psalm that they should have believed. What's interesting is, is in 1517, or a little bit after that actually, Martin Luther did believe this psalm. As a matter of fact, as he meditated on this psalm, he read, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is what? Our fortress. He is our fortress. Okay? And so he penned these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our shelter he, admit the flood of mortal ills prevailing. This hymn is a celebration of the sovereign power of God over all earthly and spiritual powers. And of the sure hope that we have in Him because of Christ. And so we must ask ourselves the question, as we live in this day, as we struggle with pride, as we struggle with complacency, who is our mighty fortress? It is the God of Jacob. The one who gave us His Son. The one who could have life and, and give hope and give security. The one who loves us. And so let me give you some ways in which you can tangibly show your love to the Lord. First of all, wake up and avoid apathy. Awake and avoid apathy. We are called to live in such a way that we are His ambassadors. And so we need to wake up and repent of living as ambassadors of ourselves. 
So that's what they were doing. They were living as ambassadors of themselves. We need to get busy and engage in His work. James Boyce, James Boyce says, it is not the preacher who calls for justice. It is God. It is not the preacher who calls for doing righteousness on earth. It is God. So we are called to respond to Him. The second thing that we should do, A, B, C, this is B, is, is be thankful. Be thankful. Approach the God of hosts with thanksgiving and be in such a way that you live a thankful life. You know, back to the movie Shenandoah, through the course of the movie, we, you could see one tragedy after another strike the Anderson clan to where toward the end of the, this, this section of the movie, you see empty plates all around the table. And we see him there, and, and he, he begins his ritual prayer, just like he always has done. But this time, you hear his voice quiver, and his voice break, because he realizes that he is not in control. That he is not the master of his own destiny. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18 says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore with your fathers, as it is this day. So give thanks to the Lord. Live a life of thankfulness. My mother-in-law used to drive me crazy because we'd drive around the parking lots and stuff like this. She goes, I'm going to pray for our open parking place right now. I'm like, all right. And so she'd pray and it'd be one pop open right up front. And she'd say, thank you, Jesus. I'd be like, how does she do that? I never can do that. Because she lived a thankful life. Now, I'm not saying it'll always turn out that way because sometimes things don't turn out that way. But it wouldn't have mattered because my mother-in-law would have said if it would have been a couple rows away, Lord, thank you for this parking space too. Live a thankful life. All through the New Testament, it mentions being thankful to the Lord. And believe me, as I read these, I find these verses all the time, and I'm like, you know, that is a secret to godly living right there. To live before the Lord in thankfulness. Finally, check your pride. In my study this week, I found another penning of Luther which exemplifies this. He says, God created the world out of nothing, and so long as we are nothing, He can make something out of us. I like that. We're creatures. We're not gods. But pride leads us astray to self-trust and to say, well, maybe I am just a little bit of a god. Look what I've done. James reminds us, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Ravi Zachariah tells a story and he says, he doesn't know where it's factual or not. I've heard this story before too. Of the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Muhammad Ali. And he was flying to one of his engagements. And you know, Ali's name has never been associated with humility ever. And during a flight, the aircraft began to kind of bounce and go on because of the weather. And it became kind of really rough. And the passengers were accordingly instructed to fasten their seat belts immediately. And everyone complied except Ali. And noticing this, the, the stewardess came up to him and said, You know, 
you need to button your, your, your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> and she responded, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt. So whether we're Muhammad Ali or Superman or Ravi Zacharias, we all need the Lord. For He is our mighty fortress. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. It is important that we learn to evaluate our lives, that we would see if we are living in pride. I know daily I see it in my own life, the struggles that I have. Whether it be um, the things I've read or the input that I think I can bring or whether I'm feeling like I'm not getting what I deserve. We all struggle with these things, Lord. Help us to be content in You. Help us to find our rest in You. To know that You are the provider of all things. And You love us. You know our needs better than we do. And we're like little six-year-old children, Lord. And some days You're going to give us exactly what we want. And some days You're not. But You're good. Oh, always always good. And so be praised and be glorified, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.